The scripture lesson for today comes from the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, it is with trembling that we come before you this morning. My prayer is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, and that these thy people will see less of me and more of thee until they see all of thee and none of me. Amen. As we have been working through these last seven words from the cross, we have also been examining the various accounts and viewpoints of the gospel writers. We have read and even already repeated certain parts of uh, the story in an attempt to put together a fuller and more complete picture of what actually transpired in these final hours. Up to this point, the narrative of the crucifixion has focused primarily on the conversations that Jesus has been having. We heard Jesus praying to God, Father, forgive them. We heard to the thieves on the side, truly, you too will be with me in paradise. To Mary and John, here is your son, here is your mother. But as death approaches... As the breathing becomes labored, as blood and water are leaving the body, we begin to focus more in on the physical and psychological toll that Jesus is having to endure. Now, as an educational note, when we study the scriptures and when we focus in on Jesus this closely, as we've been doing these last few weeks, we are engaging in what is known as Christology. Does that sound fancy? Uh, Christology is the study of the nature of Jesus Christ. And within the scholarly world of Christology, there are two subsections of study that are defined as high Christology and low Christology. Now, as a note, high and low don't mean anything like better and worse. A high Christology is one that emphasizes and starts with the divinity of Jesus. 
It looks at things like Christ's pre-existence in creation, his relationship to the other persons in the Trinity, how his divinity was displayed during his time on earth through miracles of healing and through his dominion over creation. It's everything that was wrapped up in that first hymn we sang this morning, crown him Lord of all. On the other hand, a low Christology emphasizes or starts with the humanity of Christ. As part of our theological heritage, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's why we as United Methodists have two candles on our altar. It's where both of these come together. The sacrificial Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is, was, and forevermore shall be one person with two natures, divine and human, fully united. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is God. And so when we talk about the pain that Jesus felt, when we emphasize, like last Sunday, I am thirsty, his thirst. When we look at the brokenness of his physical body, we are engaging in uh, the study of low Christology. This is the human Jesus, the incarnate God taking on human flesh to walk where we walk, to feel what we feel. This is the God who knows what it is to hunger, to thirst, and to die. It is King Jesus who could have called 10,000 angels at this moment. It is King Jesus who could have called down fire on the Romans and on the crowd. It is King Jesus who could have spoken the very nails out of his hands. But that is not what God's plan has been. Oh, no. The Paschal mystery that we now engage with is one where the divine and the human become intertwined and inseparable so that we see the fullness of this man, this God, this pile of clay begin to come undone. It is in this moment where our mutual humanity is unmade and Jesus Christ, the new Adam, demonstrates the telos, the full and completeness of humanity as God intended it. Jesus is the very embodiment of the imago dei, the image of God, and now serves as the prime example of how we should live our lives, giving ourselves fully to God, even unto death. And if all of this sounds way too complicated and cerebral, as it may. Let's take a moment to look a little bit closer at this unmaking, this deconstruction of Christ and the deconstruction of even creation itself. In our gospel reading this morning, Mark says that when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Darkness. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. But here in this moment, in this unmaking, in the death, dying, and eventual transformation of our world, what was done must now be undone in order to be redone. And so darkness 
has come over the whole land. The heavens themselves respond to the will and the words of our God. And we see this happen in other places as well. If we were to flip over and read Matthew's gospel here, we would learn that upon Jesus' death, the earth shook and the rocks split, the tombs broke open. By contrast, if we go back in Genesis at the dawn of creation, that's when God gathered the seas together, gathered the land together. But here at the end, we read that the earth shakes and rocks are splitting. At the death of Christ, the world rends itself in two. You've heard me preach before on the importance of water in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we know that all of creation, all life, came out of this water. So to be lacking in water, to be dry, to be thirsty, is to be separated from creation and to be separated from life. From dust we were created, but dust will not hold itself together. It is only through this added moisture, through water, will it take hold and maintain its shape. Jesus is thirsty. His body is lacking in water. What blood, and as we will later read, what liquid, what water was left in his body will be quickly drained. We also know that his breathing is getting harder. At the dawn of creation, it was the breath of God that gave us life. Genesis 2 verse 7 says that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It is no secret to be absent of breath is also to be absent of life. So in this moment, Jesus, in all of his humanity, is being unmade. Now there are, I assume, a number of people here who might be familiar with this kind of unmaking. There are doctors, nurses, other medical professionals here this morning. And there are also just us regular folk who have witnessed death up close. And for those of us who have walked with other saints through the final hours of their life, for those of us who have witnessed such things, there is an understanding that there are occasionally actions and behaviors that accompany this unmaking, that come from dehydration, that come from a lack of oxygen. We have watched, helpless even, as those we have cared for begin to degenerate not only physically but mentally. There are streams of consciousness that might occasionally display an understanding of the present, but they may recall things that happened many years ago. They may be conversations that are rehashed with people we've never met. These final moments are mysterious, sometimes humorous, and can even be illuminating. So given what we know about the dying Christ, the human Christ, his dehydration, his loss of blood, this growing inability to breathe, what do we make of this loud cry in verse 34? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
How do we reconcile these confusing words, words that seem to contradict a life of complete and utter devotion? How do we reconcile the dual nature of Christ, the divinity and the humanity? Does Jesus feel forsaken? Has the link between the Father and the Son really been broken? Why do Matthew and Mark both include these words in Aramaic and also then translated? What is happening in this moment? What is God doing? Always asking ourselves that. What is God doing? What is God saying? What is God saying to us in this unmaking and in this destruction? If this is indeed part of Christ's final sermon, why would he include these words? Well, I'd like to start by answering some of these questions with a song. I'll start. You join in. Amazing grace. I realize that not everyone may know every verse to that song, so we'll stop after that one. And I also know that there are some people who might be new to the faith who may not have grown up in church uh, singing that song. But for those of us who have attended church for almost our entire lives, for those of us who have worshipped together, who have studied scripture, who have prayed together, who have lived in a community of faith, let me ask you this. Do you ever, especially choir, do you ever think that you will forget that song? Anybody? You can shake your head yes, no, maybe. When did you first learn it? Do you remember somebody sitting you down and teaching you that song? Even without the hymnals, without the words, could we hum it? That is something that has been ingrained into our brains that will most likely never leave. It's written upon our souls. The words and tune of amazing grace, they transcend language and culture, nation, and even denominational structures. For a more secular version of this, let's try another song. I'll start, you join in. <clears throat> it's fun to stay at the... Yeah, all right, you get it, you get it, you get it. All right, great. Everyone knew. All right, good. <coughs> now, I'm sure there are other examples of, of this, and we could go on all day, but you get the idea. My point here is this. In his final moments of consciousness, I would like to suggest to you that Jesus was not crying out against God. Jesus had not lost the faith, and the connection that exists between the Father and the Son was not broken. I propose and invite you to reflect on this alternative idea that Jesus, with some of his last breaths, was perhaps singing. And it may sound a bit odd, but hear me out. One more time. Praise God from whom all... 
Okay, great. We, as a community of faith, as people who have attended church for maybe our entire lives, we've worshiped together, we've studied scripture, we've prayed together, we have a shared knowledge, memory, and understanding of certain religious customs, actions, procedures, practices, and habits. Some of them are involved in worship. Some are involved about where you park. Some of them are involved about which pew you sit in. We are people with methods. For Jewish people like Jesus, who knew the Hebrew scriptures, much like us today, so too did they have these methods. And they would use them. And in their worship, they would practice them and they would carry them out in a similar fashion. They didn't have a hymnal. They had the book of Psalms. They used Psalms as their hymnal. And the opening line of any psalm served as a reference to the whole, similar to how the first two words of Amazing Grace cue you into what will follow. So too do the words of the Psalms work. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is the opening line of Psalm 22, which we used in our call to worship this morning. So just as these first few measures of amazing grace stir our hearts and our minds and our voices into a regular and familiar rhythm, so too would the Jews who heard Jesus know that perhaps, maybe not the entirety of the psalm, but they would know at least where to look for a fuller message. Jesus had said at least seven times in recorded scripture that if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. And this means that though Jesus might be speaking to everyone, he speaks in such a way and using such a language that only those who have spiritual perception will understand what he is saying. There will be many who hear these words my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But only a few who may grasp the meaning. And so, in case there might be any truth to this, I invite us to look at Psalm 22. It's in page 505 of your pew Bible at the bottom right. You can follow along or I'll read it and you can just listen and kind of close your eyes and take it in. Psalm 22, a psalm of David with notes to the music director. It has a tune to the tune of the deer of the dawn. And this was written roughly a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, 
scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. Oh, my help, come quickly to my, to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord, and may your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of all the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. The word of God for the people of God.
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark both offer a translation of the Aramaic for the benefit of the Gentile readers because they clearly want us to hear the exact words that Jesus spoke. At his lowest point, the living word of God instinctively breathes the Psalter. And from it, he borrows the words that express the anguish not only of the body, but of his soul. But even in the darkness, God was still my God. And even though there was no sign of God, and even though the pain obscured the promises somewhere in the depth of his very being, there remained the assurance that God was holding him. And though we who sit in the gallery of the omniscient reader are sure of the outcome, Jesus, human Jesus, who is suffering the full fury of hell, is not. He is standing where no one has stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and in one tiny moment of time all that sin deserved, the curse in unmitigated concentration. It's as if a black hole of all that was, is, and ever will be is focused in on this moment. And he is undone. So powerful was this unmaking, this deconstruction, that even the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, who had most likely seen hundreds, if not thousands of these deaths before, said, surely this man was the Son of God. And so church, in our breathing, in our drinking, in our praying and singing, in all of our religious customs, actions, procedures, practices, habits, and methods. As we move into these final weeks of Lent, I implore you to remember and turn to the Lord. Let all the families of the nations worship before him. To God, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down into the dust. And we, as followers of Christ, shall live for God. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord because we are to proclaim his deliverance to a people not yet born. And we are to tell them that Jesus Christ has done it. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Mm -hmm.